0: Lord God, thank you that you have communicated to us who you are and what you have done. In the person of the Lord Jesus, help us to understand who he is, place our faith in him, and grow in Christ's likeness as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, all professions have some sort of value, all vocations do, but depending on the criteria, Depending on what you are trying to value in that profession, some are more valued than others. This is from Business Insider website, June 2017. Nursing has taken out the title as the most highly regarded profession in Australia in terms of ethics and honesty for the 23rd year running, according to Roy Morgan's latest image of profession survey for 2017. Nursing led a clean sweep for healthcare workers in the survey, with doctors and pharmacists taking out second and third spots respectively. Clearly, when it comes to health, Australians regard those treating them as being far more trustworthy than most. Now, let's be honest, that's no big surprise. I'm pretty sure that if we did a hands-up poll in this room, we would get a similar result. Nursing healthcare professionals at the top of the list in terms of most highly regarded, most trustworthy vocations. But here's the question, why is that? Why is that so? Well, I think it's because these professions help others. Yes, medicine is a pretty lucrative way to do that, and even nursing can pay quite well. But fundamentally, they are about helping others. And we have a sense that that's that's an inherently noble thing to do that that is admirable. And the nobility of healthcare is perhaps best summed up in the famous Hippocratic Oath that doctors, many doctors take upon receiving their medical licences. If you just put that up on the screen. It was first penned about 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece, and so it's undergone many updates over the millennia. And this recent version, well, pretty recent, from 2006, I found on the Australian Medical Association website... And as you'll see there, it includes oaths like, I solemnly pledge to consecrate my life to the service of humanity. Isn't that great? The health of my patient will be my first consideration. I will respect the secrets that are confided in me, even after the patient has died. I will not permit considerations of age, disease or disability, creed, ethnic origin, gender, nationality, political affiliation race, sexual orientation social standing or any other factor to intervene between my duty and my patient I will maintain the utmost respect for human life and I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties even under threat I make these promises solemnly freely and upon my honour it's great stuff Stirring stuff, incredibly noble, the ideals of the Hippocratic Oath. But why is an oath like this so worthy of celebrating? Why is it needed? Indeed, why is the entire medical profession needed in the first place? Well, it's needed because we live in a world where people get sick and people get hurt. We live in a world where there is decay, where there is death. These all too common elements that diminish our quality of life or end it altogether. We live in a world where there is suffering, constant suffering. And I know I don't need to convince any of us in this room of that reality. Each of us has been touched by suffering, some more than others, some right now perhaps. Many of you will have experienced much more profound suffering than I have in my time yet. It's all-encompassing. And so that's why, broadly speaking, as a society, we place so much trust in our medical practitioners because they're the ones who combat suffering, who fight against us, who make us better and keep us alive. And that is a noble calling. Anyone doing that and doing it well is worthy of our trust and our regard. And as we come to the passages before us today, we see someone doing just that and doing it well. Jesus, we see him combating suffering, making people better, keeping people alive. And these two accounts in chapters 4 and 5, they almost read as, as case studies, case studies of unwell people who encounter the one person who can make them truly well. And in these accounts, Jesus is presented almost as the, as the quintessential health care practitioner, selflessly and capably improving people's quality of life. But not just selflessly and capably improving people's physical quality of life, but their spiritual quality of life too. And as we'll see, in the good purposes of God, those two outcomes are, are inextricably linked they are two sides of the one coin. So let's briefly examine these two case studies in turn. Case study one, a dying child and his desperate dad. I've forgotten that I had those slides in there. Jesus is back in Cana, the village where he performed his first sign, turning water into wine. And we read that he is approached by a certain royal official, this man has heard that Jesus is in the region and he has journeyed up from the big lakeside town of Capernaum to meet him. Now as a royal official, he is an important and powerful man. And yet he has made this humbling journey from the bustling lakeside town of Capernaum all the way up to this small, insignificant Galilean village to meet some rabbi. Why? Well, that's because powerful as he is, he is not all-powerful. He is not powerful enough to help his sick son, who by now, we are told, is on the verge of death. In the face of death, human importance and power takes a back seat, doesn't it? We realise there's only so much we can do. It takes a back seat to desperation. Desperate people do desperate things. So this man has heard of Jesus, this person who could just possibly do something to help and with really nothing left to lose, he journeys up a whole day's journey from Capernaum to Cana to find him. And when he finds Jesus, we're told that he pleads, pleads with him to come down and help his son. And having thrown himself on Jesus' mercy and having made such a plea, Jesus' initial response would have probably not filled him with much confidence. What does he say there in verse 48? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It seems like such an odd, out of place, even appropriate comment to make in light of this this man's anguished plea for help. But what Jesus is doing is, is he's picking up on something. And this man's plight, it proves the the catalyst for articulating it. See, the fact is, this man has come to Jesus on his own terms, and he doesn't really care who Jesus is. But as John's Gospel makes clear, who Jesus is is a profoundly important question that every single person encountering him needs to consider. This man's own terms are, to put it bluntly, what can you do for me? What can you do for me right here, right now? And while it is perfectly understandable in this royal official's case, why he is so fixated on the needs of the moment, this is an attitude that is consistent with Jesus' own people, all of them. It's what Jesus meant when he said a prophet is without honour in his own country. Yes, we're told that the Galileans welcome Jesus when he comes, but primarily what they're attracted to are the signs and wonders that Jesus performs. They've seen him at the festival, doing amazing things, and that's what they're attracted to. They don't give him his full honour. They never seem to wonder what, what the signs are pointing to, Jesus' true identity, his true mission. And this misguided preoccupation that we see here in this Galilean part of John's Gospel will continue for the next few chapters. And it's a misguided preoccupation that has, in many senses, continued for 2,000 years. Preoccupations people still have today. We reflected on this when we looked at Jesus' last visit to Cana, back in chapter 2, when he turned water into wine. People admire Jesus' profound teaching. They dig his personal spirituality. Some people can even accept that Jesus had supernatural power and that he still exists today and exercises that supernatural power, but that is as far as they often get. Because if that supernatural power can't be exercised to make my life better right here, right now, in the way that I expect, then I'm not interested. Maybe that's you. Is that as far as you've got with Jesus? if that is you, if you have never discerned what those attributes amount to, what they point to about who Jesus really is and what he can ultimately offer you, then you've missed the point. That is where this father is at this stage. He can't help but be focused on his rapidly dying son. Who it must be said is a whole day's journey away at this point. So if he makes an even more rapid decline, the father will not be able to get back in time to help him, to see him. And so we see the father, he repeats his plea with increasing desperation. Sir, come down before my son dies. Actually, he doesn't even just say son. The the term he uses is boy. It is a term of deep intimacy and endearment of a father to a son. Come down before my little boy dies. But Jesus doesn't come. Instead, he sends the man away. But he sends him away saying, go. Go your son will live. Now, considering the circumstances, that is a bold declaration. But it's a declaration that does something. First of all, it's a declaration that gives us a glimpse of belief. Belief that is, for once at this stage, not wedded to witnessing signs and wonders. Whatever the Father understands, about Jesus' declaration, whatever he understands about what Jesus is truly capable of, he takes Jesus at his word and he heads back to Capernaum without the man he came to Cana for. And the account ends with the father being met on his way back home and learning that his son is indeed alive, just as Jesus said. The declaration has worked. And then on further investigation, he learns That the moment his son became well was the same moment exactly that Jesus was speaking to him. And with that realisation, this powerful, important man is now a changed man. He's gone from believing in Jesus' renown, to believing his words, to believing in Jesus himself. That is the health care, if you will, that Jesus provides Yes, he restored the child's physical quality of life. But most profoundly, he restored the whole household's spiritual quality of life. And make no mistake, that is what has happened here. If you've been following in the series, you'll know that John does not use the word believe lightly. He doesn't attribute it to Nicodemus, the inquiring Pharisee of chapter 3. He doesn't even attribute it to the woman at the well, whom we looked at last week, or at least not explicitly. But he uses it here. He says, this man and his whole household believed in Jesus. And so they have received life, just as John 3.16 promises. That's case study number one. Case study number two, a lifelong cripple in his cynical self-interest. This second healing, even though it reads back to back, actually takes place sometime later back in Jerusalem, back down south. We're told a Jewish festival is what has brought Jesus back to Jerusalem. And John tells us of this pool called Bethesda, located just inside the north gate of the temple precinct. And he describes for us in verse 3 the scene around this pool. He says, within these colonnades, which were there, a large number of the sick blind, lame and paralysed lay. The scene that comes to mind to me is, you know, um, the emergency department at St Vincent's Hospital in King's Cross on a Friday night. I have been in that emergency department on a Friday night and that's what it looks like. A large number of very unwell people all over the place. And John also tells us of this, of this local superstition that's attached to this pool about waters that are stirred at the apparent touch of an invisible angel and the healing that was supposedly available to the lucky person who could get in there first. He doesn't dwell on this, but that is what has drawn this crowd of desperate down and outers, the hope of a miracle cure. And for one of them, that's soon to become more than just a hope. Among this large group, Jesus finds a man who's been sick for 38 years, basically His whole life. We're not told how Jesus knows this. Maybe he asked around and some locals knew him. Maybe it was the supernatural knowledge that he's already demonstrated on a number of occasions. And we're not told exactly what this man's sickness was. But we know he's been unable to get himself into the pool, so he was probably crippled in some way. And unlike the royal official who comes to Jesus who has the capacity to make a journey from Capernaum to Cana, Jesus initiates contact with this man. And he asks, him, he asks him what seems to be a pretty silly question. Do you want to get well? The man's been sick his whole life, almost 40 years. Of course he wants to get well. But on reflection, the question actually isn't silly. The man's responses give insight into why Jesus asked it. The man can't seem to see past the magic water as his sole source of healing. And his response also suggests that, to some extent, he has grown accustomed to this life. And understandably, there's this weary, defeated cynicism about him. You can almost imagine him thinking to himself, yeah, sure, mate, I'd love to get well. But after decades of disappointment and being let down by people, I am not holding my breath. It's almost as if John presents this man's pessimism as another obstacle for Jesus to overcome. But overcome it he does. Verse 8. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Like turning water into wine, Jesus simply speaks. And again, his words alone have effect, instantly, completely. After 38 years of living as an invalid, this man, just like that, can get up and walk. What a medical miracle. But remember, the health care Jesus provides, he is as much concerned with restoring the man's spiritual quality of life as he is with restoring his physical quality of life. And to that end, what follows in the rest of the account is actually quite dispiriting. Because what happens next? First, the man is confronted by the indignant Jewish authorities for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, in apparent violation of Sabbath law. And then the healed man proceeds to, to throw Jesus under the bus. He, he shifts the blame for his mat carrying to the one who told me. The one who told me to pick up my madam walk the one who made me better it's his fault it's not mine and then the jewish authorities the religious leaders despite being informed that a miraculous healing has taken place which you might think would be cause for awe and wonderment or at least spiritual curiosity their only concern is finding the identity of the person who told the healed man to walk so that they can get him in even more trouble presumably because after all, this is someone going around telling other people to break the Sabbath. This is a dangerous individual. The healed man hasn't even learned the name of the man who has so profoundly changed his life. It's almost as if it doesn't matter. He's got what he needs, and he's moving on. In the postscript to the account, we're told Jesus returns sometime later, maybe later that day, maybe the next day, He seems to discern the healed man's general hardness of heart towards spiritual matters. And so you see in verse 14, he gives him this cryptic warning. See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. What does that mean? Was the man's sickness a result of sin? Elsewhere, Jesus explicitly debunks that notion that there is a connection between those two things. That's not clear. But what is clearer is the something worse, which is probably a reference to final judgment, when God will finally judge the world, and Jews believe this. It's striking that in the entire account there is no expression of gratitude or thanks or appreciation towards Jesus on the part of the healed man. And with no mention by John of believing faith in stark contrast to the royal official whom he goes out of his way to mention that this was the result, that he believed in Jesus. With no mention of John, by John of, his, of believing faith on the part of the healed man, this healed man is in all likelihood heading towards that something worse. After all, what does he do after hearing Jesus' direct exhortation to stop sinning? he goes and finds the hostile Jewish authorities and he informs on Jesus. He tells them, the one that you're angry with, the one that you want to get, I now know who he is. Jesus, that rabbi. And that sets in motion a whole series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders that will unfold throughout John's Gospel, that unfold over the course of the next year and a half, two years of Jesus' public ministry, and which climax in chapter 12 with the explicit plot to have Jesus killed. That's case study number two. So what do we see from these two case studies? What do we see having having them placed side by side? How do they compare and contrast, if you will? Well, there are some similarities and there are some differences. But if there's one thing that these accounts have in common, it's the confronting reality of living in a sin-affected world. And we do live in a sin-affected world. We don't just live in a world where random things happen. The Bible tells us that human sin not only cut people off from a right relationship with our Creator, and continues to do so, but that human sin actually placed the universe itself under a curse. And so the Bible speaks elsewhere of creation groaning under the curse of sin. And sickness and death and disrupted nature are all part of that curse, are all effects and consequences of that curse. So too is human self-interest and human rebellion against God. A rebellion that does not receive God when he reaches out to us or receives him in the wrong way. And we see this, this lack of reception in the various characters' engagements with Jesus, don't we? The distraught royal official comes to Jesus for a personal miracle and nothing more. He's blinkered, understandably, and he doesn't stay there, but that is where he starts. The crippled man is undoubtedly delighted to have the proper use of his legs, but that is where his delight ends, in cynical self-interest. And the religious leaders hear of this miraculous healing and their only concern is to prosecute the one who performed it in the name of religious rightness. We're a fairly hopeless bunch, aren't we? And yet there is hope. There is hope in this passage. While these accounts remind us of the universal experience of suffering, we are also reminded that there is one who has the desire and the power to bring a universal end to suffering. Jesus is not just another doctor going forth with his training and his Hippocratic oath, learned, full of ideal and compassion, but ultimately limited in what he can do. No, Jesus as God has the power not just to put a stopper in suffering, not just to stave it off, but to eradicate suffering, once and for all. That is divine health care. And as we've seen, when when His power is seen for what it is, as a sign of His true identity, and as as a promise of the even greater work of salvation and restoration that He will bring, then the sin that drives human self-interest and rebellion against God is also combated. It's also defeated. People can be brought to the point of saving faith, just like the household of the royal official. In the good purposes of God,